number nine. Jeremiah chapter number nine. Every week I stand before you knowing that uh, I have something important to say and hoping I can get your attention. I know it's important because it's God's Word. And every part of it, regardless of the subject matter, is God's Word. And that makes it important. But today, I, I feel that way, I think, more than ever. And I challenge you to, to really listen, tune in to what I say. Let me explain why. I want you to think about all of those that have been saved recently. And think about those that have been saved after having already made a profession of faith, some, some of them maybe even years ago. And that's wonderful, glorious. We ought to rejoice about that. But I couldn't help but think, what if, what if those folks had died before they were truly saved? What if? I'll tell you, while their loved ones would be talking about how wonderful it is to know that they're now in heaven in the presence of the Lord, while we are celebrating their life at the funeral service, anticipating the day that we are reunited with them, while all of that's going on, they would be suffering in a devil's hell. Let me see how many of you, how many of you made a profession of faith and then, uh, and then maybe years later, maybe a few months, but later on you discovered that, that you had not really been saved and you trusted the Lord as your Savior later on. Raise your hand up. Wow, look at that. That's what I'm talking about. And... Uh, just imagine how horrible, how terrible it would have been for them to die before that moment came that they realized that they're really not saved at all and that they put their trust in Christ. And it breaks my heart to think that that same thing might happen to someone here today. And by that, I simply mean that someone here today has made a profession of faith. You've given us no reason to doubt whether you're sincere or not. You're faithful in attending church. It seems to be that you have all of the evidence of a, being a Christian, but, but really you're not. Others think you're saved. You might even think you're saved at the moment, but... You're not. And I, I just can't hardly bear the thought that some of you, someone here today, might die without Christ. And your loved ones would never know until they get to heaven and discover you're not there. And that's why I urge you to please listen to the message this morning. Notice verse 23 of Jeremiah chapter 9. Thus saith the Lord, 
Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, and neither let the mighty man glory in his might. Let not the rich man glory in his riches, but let him that glorieth glory in this, that he understandeth and knoweth me, that I am the Lord which exercise loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth, for in these things I delight, saith the Lord. Jeremiah just happens to be my favorite Old Testament prophet and one of my favorite characters in all of the Bible. I love Jeremiah for one thing because he was both tough and tender. He was a man known as the weeping prophet. And as one writer described him, he said that Jeremiah is the most human of all of the prophets. That is simply another way of saying that he is a common, ordinary man. He's not a super saint by any stretch of the imagination. One of the things that I really admire about Jeremiah was the ability to keep going when everything seemed to be against him and when all of his efforts seemed to be in vain. He was not easily discouraged, but he was not above the possibility of it. In fact, we're told that there was a time where he wanted to resign. He was going to throw in the towel. He was going to quit. I mean, it just seemed like that he was uh, banging his head against a brick wall, getting nowhere and he was brokenhearted and tried to quit, but couldn't. I want you to notice what led up to our text this morning before we deal with the text proper. So here's the situation. As Jeremiah is considering the condition of the people, he's heartbroken, he's filled with grief, and he's longing for relief. And God sends him to denounce the sins of the people that he loves so dearly and to warn them of impending judgment against them. And so naturally loving them as he did, this, this took a toll on the prophet. Their wickedness wearied him to the point that he just wanted to retire, wanted to get away from it all, wanted to go into seclusion somewhere. But he knew that we're not excused from our duty because it's dangerous or difficult. We've got a job to do, regardless of how unpleasant it might be. And I want you to notice what he did. The first thing, if we read the entirety of this chapter, we would notice that he pointed out the problem. And the root of the problem, of course, was sin. And that was the reason for their rotten condition. And if you look in verse 2 and 3, you'll notice that he is very specific about denouncing their sins. Notice that in just these few verses, he mentions murder, adultery, treachery, lying, cowardice, betrayal, backbiting, slander, deceit. I mean, he didn't pull any punches. He didn't just say that sin is bad and God is against it and you ought not do it. He named the sins and that's what it you know, when it really gets unpleasant with people, whenever you really begin to bear down and name the sins, but it's something that has to be done. And so as he reveals what the problem is, sin, then he gives the revelation of all of the details. And notice in verse 3 that the record 
of their sin was growing. It was getting larger. He says in verse 3, they proceed from evil to evil. Well, if that sounds familiar to you, it ought to, because that is precisely what Paul said to the Philippians, that he said evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse. In other words, the world's not getting better. We're not making improvements, but we're getting worse. We're getting further away from God all of the time. So here he is showing them precisely what the problem is. And then notice that he pronounced a warning against them. If you started in verse 7, we're not going to read all of the verses, but notice in verse 7, this is what he's telling them that God said he was going to do. God said, I'll melt them, I'll try them. Verse 9 Shall I not visit them for these things, saith the Lord? Shall not my soul be avenged on such a nation as this for the mountains? Will I take up a weeping and wailing and for the inhabitants of the wilderness a lamentation because they are burned up so that none can pass through them? Verse 11, And I will make Jerusalem heaps and a den of dragons and I will make the cities of Judah desolate without inhabitant. Verse 13, And the Lord saith, Because they have forsaken my law which I set before them and have not obeyed my voice neither walked therein look at verse 15 the last part behold I will feed them even this people with wormwood and give them water of gall to drink verse 16 I will scatter them also among the heathen I will send a sword after them till I have consumed them those are just the highlights of what God is saying that is going to befall the nation and Jeremiah, standing before those people that he loves so dearly, denounces their sins by giving them this blunt warning from God that their sin is going to lead to their destruction. It would be a wonderful thing if we had more preaching like that today. Instead of this notion, you know, of trying to improve yourself and living your best life now and all of the nonsense about that you are so worthy that God is obligated to do whatever you want Him to do and so forth, it's strange that we just want to ignore the real problem, and that problem is sin. Not only that, but having done that, it would be awful if He had just stopped there, right? And He could have. He could have just said, look, you sinned against God. God's going to destroy you. You disobeyed God. You displeased God. And consequently, it's going to lead to your destruction. But notice he counsels them in verse number 4. Take heed every one of his neighbor, and trust ye not in any brother, for every brother will utterly supplant, and every neighbor will speak with slanders. He's simply telling them here to beware of others and he's talking about family he's talking about friends he's talking about the fact that you cannot you must not put your trust in man this is a key statement because of the fact that we are so easily so greatly influenced by other people and it's just one of many warnings given throughout the word of God that it's better to put our trust in the Lord than in man there are many that have been led astray because well because grandpa believed this or that or because grandma said this because mom and dad or some dear friend maybe maybe someone who meant well gave them bad advice 
misinformation. And consequently, they jumped on board with the beliefs of that person. And this was, was no doubt a problem in that day. Instead of listening to God, they had listened to others. And so he is counseling them, warning them. And that is precisely what they needed at the time. So he provides them with the counsel, having already, already explained the nature of their problem. But the great part, It's what we find when we get to verse 23 and 24 where he proclaimed the solution. And that's what I want you to really focus in on for the next few minutes. The source of their problem was the same as ours, and that's sin. We see the reason for it. Look at verse 3. He says, They know not me, saith the Lord. They know not me. I mean, this, this is the source of their problem. They had sinned against God, but the reason they had done so is because God says they know not me. They don't know me. They don't know me. And the solution to their problem, well, it's the same as the solution for our problems, and that is that we must know God. I can't even begin to tell you how important these two verses are because this is the key to absolutely everything because nothing is ever going to change for the better until we realize the difference between knowing about God and knowing God. Knowing about God and knowing God. Now, knowing about God is interesting. I mean, what could be more amazing than that? To learn about God. Oh, we know there is so much that we don't know about Him, right? That we'll never know until we get to heaven. And it's interesting whenever we take the time to reflect upon who He is, His attributes. Or whenever we think about what He has done. Or when we think about what He is doing presently. Or we think about what He has promised yet to do so it's interesting for us to know about God but it's also important for us to know about God because what you believe about God matters knowing the truth about God is crucial because you will never know him until you know about him and sadly we don't talk enough about God in a little notebook that I keep at home to jot down different thoughts and things that impress me, I wrote down a quotation uh, about God that was really great. It would fit into any sermon preached by a Baptist today. Great statement. And yet it was written by an absolute heathen. You, you see, you can't depend upon what somebody else says about God. You need to know about God. It's interesting, it's important, but listen, it is insufficient to just know about God. It's not enough. It's incomplete. We must know God. In other words, we have to have a relationship with God. And when God says, they know not me, he's saying, they do not have a relationship with me. The devil knows a lot about God. 
But he's certainly not a child of God. So knowing God is the only solution for man's problems. The only remedy for man's ruin is to have a relationship with God. By nature, we're sinners. By nature, we're separated from God. And our only hope is to be reconciled to God. That results in a relationship with God wherein we become a child of God. In John 8, 44, Jesus said to the scribes and the Pharisees, He says, Ye are of your father, the devil. That would be insulting to a lot of people today if in conversation with them I was to say, Look, you know, ye are of your father, the devil. But the fact is, that same thing is true of every unsaved person. It was true of you, true of you before you trusted Christ as your Savior. Because we're all sinners. We're all dead in our trespasses and sins. We're separated from God. We're taken captive of the devil at his will. And as Jesus said, ye are of your father the devil, and the deeds of your father ye will do. So our relationship has an effect upon our behavior. In other words, the reason they did what they did was because their father was the devil and consequently the only way for you and I to live a life pleasing to God is to have a relationship with God and, and regardless of how much you know about Him, you'll never make it to heaven until you truly know Him. There... There's no other way. There'll be enough so-called Bible scholars in hell to open a Bible college. Because it's not how much we know about God. You can quote the entire Bible, but that doesn't mean you're going to heaven when you die. You can give every penny of the money that you earn, but that doesn't mean that you're a child of God. So the solution to our problem is to know God in the sense of having a relationship with God where He is our Father and we are His children. And there's only one way that that is possible. John 14, 6, Jesus said, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Oh, we could talk for hours about that one statement there. And whenever you consider God's holiness and you consider our sinfulness, you, you, you might come to the conclusion that it's utterly impossible for us to have a personal relationship with God. And look, that would be true. That would be the case except for the fact, just one thing, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. It's through His sacrifice that we can know God in the truest sense. And in the light of that fact that He's the way, the truth, and the life, I want to ask you some questions this morning about this business of knowing God, whether you know God or not. Do you know Him? Do you know Him? And let me tell you, if you know Him, you know it. John said, these things have I written unto you that believe in the name of the Son of the God that you may know that you have eternal life. I, I don't know, you know, I've talked to some people about whether or not they had been saved and their answer is, well, I hope so, I think so. 
how sad it is. If you know God, you know, you know God. You know that. Bev and I will soon be celebrating our 60th anniversary, and I know that I'm married because I, I can remember the event, believe it or not. I can't remember what it did yesterday, but I remember that. I've never forgotten that. And if you've trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior, the most important thing that could ever happen to you, then you know it. So question number one is, do you know God? I'm not asking you, do you know about God? I've been preaching 53, going on 54 years, and there's still a lot of stuff I don't know about God, but I know that I know God. I know Him. Secondly, is there any evidence that you know God? Where there is life, there will be signs. And there are many folks that profess what they do not possess. Anybody can say, oh yeah, I, yeah, I know that I'm saved. I, when I was just a kid, I walked down the aisle during vacation Bible school. I shook the preacher's hand. I said a prayer. I was baptized, become a church member. Oh yeah, I know that I'm saved. But is there any real evidence that you've been saved? If you study 1 John, you'll see that over and over again, in fact, when he said, these things have I written that you may know that you have eternal life, he says that at the conclusion of that letter, which the entire letter is dealing with this issue of knowing that you're saved. He uses that word know, I think, like 38 times in that little brief letter. He's telling us that there will be signs of life. I mean, look, if you're driving down the road and you see some guy laying over there in the ditch and you get out and he's not breathing and you check his pulse and it's not beating and his skin is discolored because he's been laying there for a week, there are no signs of life. You can safely assume that he's dead because where there's life, there's going to be signs of life. We're not saved by our works. We're not saved by our good deeds or any such thing as that. But when we're saved, as Jesus tells us through the Apostle Paul, when we're saved, we become a new creature in Christ. Is there evidence? And for some folks that have, that made a profession of faith and years later, years later, they suddenly realize, I'm not saved, and they truly get saved we have people right now that, that, were they honest, they would tell you, I knew all during that time, basically, that there was really no evidence in my life that I, that I was really saved. There had been no change of heart, no change in my life. Do you know Him? Is there evidence that you know Him? Number three, have you considered the cost of not knowing Him? Have you considered the cost of not knowing Him? If you leave here without knowing God, without having been born again, you'll turn your back on the most important thing in all of the world. You might be worldly wise. I read about one fellow that had, uh, had an IQ that was beyond that of Einstein. But that didn't make him a child of God. I read about another fellow that had 31-inch biceps, a bodybuilder, the world's largest biceps, but that 
that doesn't impress God. And, and that's what he's telling us in these verses. Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, neither let the mighty man, the strong man, glory in his might, or the rich man. I wonder how many billions Bill Gates has. But it's not going to get him anywhere with God. If you don't know God, none of those things are worth talking about. You can be the richest man on earth, but that doesn't mean that your sin debt has been paid. You can live in a mansion here on earth, but you won't have a home in heaven. You can be in good health, but if you don't know God, you're sin sick. You might be popular, but you're not going to have any friends in hell. You might have a retirement plan that is out of this world, but you're going to suffer for all of eternity. So does that make any sense? Would it make any sense for you today to leave here not knowing that you know God? Not being sure. How do you sleep at night? How can you leave here with that uncertainty in your heart? Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Thank God for that blessed assurance. Why would you do that? To leave here without knowing Christ is your Savior. What if, what if this could be your last chance? The very beginning, I mentioned those that have recently been saved who had made professions of faith earlier. But what if they had died the week before they got saved? We'd have the funeral service. Beautiful flyers, all of the friends and family would be there. We'd try to think of all of the nice things to say about the deceased. We'd take comfort in, you know, our misunderstanding of where they're really at, thinking they're in heaven, and we would rejoice to think, oh, someday we'll see them again, and all of the time they're suffering in a lake of fire. Think about it, folks. That could happen to someone here this morning. And this could be your last chance. You have no idea what might befall you when you leave here this morning. None whatsoever. Now let me give you some advice and I'm through. Number one, know what you don't know. Know what you don't know because pretending is about the dumbest thing anybody could do. Know what you don't know. One of the most difficult things in teaching is trying to help people to unlearn their preconceived notions, the foolish information that they've received from others, and helping them to start with a dry slate, as it were, and to understand what they don't know. Some people are so convinced. I just know I'm going to heaven. There's no evidence. But they just know they're going to heaven. They say I know I'm going to heaven. When they could not possibly give you a clear definition of the gospel of Jesus Christ. How are you going to get there? You don't even know what the gospel is. Know what you don't know. 
At least be open and honest. Your soul depends upon you being honest about what you don't know. Secondly, the second piece of advice is know what you need to know. We need to know that we know. And the great thing about it is there's no reason for us to be confused about this matter whatsoever because right here, right here, this book I hold in my hand is the absolute pure truth. It's God's Word. You don't have to be confused about this. Oh, I understand there are a lot of things that you'll never understand that you'll never know. I know that, but When it comes down to knowing God, of what it takes for us to get from our home to heaven, for us to have all of our sins forgiven, there's no reason for anyone to be confused about that. If you have a Bible in your hand, you've got all the information that you need. I'm so glad that somebody cared enough about me to tell me about Jesus. When I had given the world reason to hate me, to despise me, to push me aside like a piece of trash, somebody cared enough to tell me about Jesus. And it made all the difference in the world and for all of eternity. It helped me to know what I needed to know so that I could know God. And for those that are here that are saved, I know you feel exactly the same way about that. The greatest day of your life was the day that someone introduced you to God and you came to know Him as your Heavenly Father. Thirdly, show what you know. Because if you don't show it, others won't know it. What, what we do speaks louder than what we say. We need to show it. We need to demonstrate it. The fact that there has been a change. It's not that we change, but rather that the Lord changed us. And we need to show others that... Somebody wrote a song years ago, I'll tell the world that I'm a Christian. Well, that's great, but let's show the world that we're a Christian. One of the best ways to do that is to share what we know. To share what we know with others, lest they go to a devil's hell. And then we need to grow in what we know. 2 Peter 3.18 says that we are to grow in the grace and in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. So So many folks today have the idea, well... I trusted Christ as my Savior. I know I'm a child of God. I'm going to heaven when I die. I've got all my spiritual business taken care of, and that's it. And as I said last week about backsliding, the best definition of backsliding I can think of is when we cease to grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. We reach a plateau in our life where we've gone so far and we just stop growing. That ought not to ever be with any child of God. We ought to be making advances spiritually and growing spiritually, becoming more and more and more like the Lord Jesus Christ until the day that we die. There's no stopping place in that. Been talking about 
being concerned about those that might be lost here this morning. People that maybe that have made a profession of faith and we assume that everything is well when it's really not. One of the best things we can do to awaken them is to show them the difference that Jesus Christ makes in a person's life. After the Lord has saved you, you need to cooperate entirely with His plan for your life. And there again, it's all laid out in the Word of God. If you haven't been baptized, you you need to do that. You need to show that outward profession of what has happened to you inwardly. And you need to align your life with the Word of God that God can use you for what? Well, He uses all of us in different ways, right? But, But the purpose behind all of it is what? That we might get the gospel to every unsaved person on this earth. That's what it's all about. If we're not going to reach out to those that are saved, if we're not going to do anything to try to win them to Christ, there's no reason for us to be here on this earth. Brother Kenneth and I was talking a while ago about, well, I was talking to Tim actually about it, the the fact that, you know, we get... uh, we get news of people watching this broadcast in other countries and several different states and places, people that watch it every single week. And uh, that's, you know, that's all well and good. But it's a great means whereby that we can get the gospel out beyond these walls, beyond where we are. Whenever we leave here as Christians, we need to understand we're entering the mission field and do what we can to reach others for Christ. But back to the main question, do you know that you know God? Do you know that? Beyond any shadow of a doubt. And there's evidence to back up What you're saying, Paul said, examine yourselves whether or not you be in the faith. Because just saying you're a Christian doesn't make you a Christian. The only thing that'll make you a Christian is the forgiveness that's secured by the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's it. And the only way that becomes effectual for you is through simple childlike faith in Him. Aren't you glad that God's willing to accept you? Even though you've you've spent all of your life rejecting Him, He's still willing to accept you if if you receive His Son. And, And I encourage you to do that this morning. Would you do that right now while we stand together? Tim's going to come. We're going to sing a hymn of invitation. And if you're here today and you don't know that you know that you're a child of God, please don't leave here until, until you've settled that matter. Our Father in heaven, how thankful we are for the provision that you made through the sacrifice of your own dear Son. To think that you loved us so much that you would give heaven's best to save us from our sins, to secure us a place in your family and a home in heaven. We're so thankful for that. And I pray today that not one person would leave here without knowing beyond any doubt that they are a child of God. 
So I pray that you'll just break down every barrier, that you'll remove every excuse, that the Holy Spirit might work upon hearts here this morning and bring someone to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. For we ask it all in His dear name. Amen. While we sing, would you come? Oh, to Jesus. I surrender.